There's been a consensus among legal analysts for some time that the greatest threat to Donald Trump may not be from special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. Instead, it may be from another group of federal prosecutors whose names are virtually unknown to the American public, the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. It's the most feared U.S. attorney's office in the country, known for a fierce tradition of independence that has earned it the nickname the Sovereign District of New York. It's the prosecutors in the Southern District that pursued Trump's longtime personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. And in securing his guilty plea, came the closest to accusing the president of criminal conduct, declaring that Cohen's crimes were directed and coordinated by individual number one, Donald J. Trump. As its investigation continues, just how far will the Southern District go? And just what are the limits of its independence? An especially relevant question now that a new attorney general, William Barr, is poised to take over the Justice Department. We'll discuss with two Southern District veterans, June Kim, who until last year was acting U.S. attorney in charge of the office, and Mimi Roca, a former assistant U.S. attorney turned MSNBC legal analyst on today's episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So very cool to have these two SDNY veterans on the show. Mimi Roca, who is definitely one of the more astute legal analysts on MSNBC, former assistant USA. But June Kim, not a guy you hear very much about, but he was the deputy to Preet Bharara, while he was U.S. attorney. And then when uh, Barrara gets fired by President Trump, June Kim takes over the office. What I'm particularly interested in asking about June Kim about is he was there when Trump calls Barrara while he's president. And that's the phone call that the two of them discuss and decide this is going too far. Trump is trying to do something with us in the Southern District. He's trying to cultivate a relationship for some purpose, and they don't return the phone call. And, of course, the very next day, Barrara is fired. Yeah, that was such an interesting moment, and I think it goes to show how – shrewd these prosecutors in the Southern District are. And of course, Preet Bharara has pretty finely tuned political instincts. But it also says something about the culture of that office, which you and I have covered for a uh, yeah. for, for decades, yeah. uh, which is that they are so careful to protect their reputation as being independent and nonpartisan that they knew that that was a phone call that could be perilous and not to take it. And I should say that having been a Justice Department reporter for a very long time, I'm sure you feel the same way, uh, it was always great to cover that office, uh, partly because they had the best cases. They would go, you know, and they had this, always had this sense that their cases could go as all over the world, you know, to get the headline grabbing case, they could go anywhere. 
the friction between the Southern District of New York and Maine Justice mm-hmm. was always part of the story. And where there's friction, there's always sources. So it was great <laughs> right. to be able to talk to those people. I remember when Rudy Giuliani was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District and um, doing his mob-busting cases and also Wall Street uh, investigations and um, you know getting a lot of heat from... Uh, as I remember it, the Wall Street Journal editorial page for uh, being too tough on Wall Street, doing raids on uh, major New York financial institutions and arresting people in front of their colleagues. Of course, they're much more sympathetic to Rudy the, Giuliani the, uh, these the days. Purple, the white-collar yeah. perp walks. Yeah, yeah. But look, before we get to them, there's a couple of developments that we should talk about. First, the defendant in perhaps the Southern District's most high-profile case at the moment, Mike Michael Cohen, who was supposed to testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee this past week, and once again, for the third time, backed out. This time, according to Lanny Davis, his spokesman slash lawyer, it was because he's recuperating from shoulder surgery he had some time ago. Um, What's interesting about that is you go back over the last three weeks, Cohen has backed out of testifying three times now. The first time, three weeks ago, he was supposed to testify before House Oversight. He backed out of that because he was afraid to testify because of the president's threats against members of his family. Which some people took as witness tampering. Yeah, uh, that seemed a stretch. And, you know, there is a U.S. Marshals Service that can protect members of your family and you if you are really deemed to be under a threat. You know, maybe Cohen thought that the president was going to order a hit team to on his father on his father in law. Uh, then the next week he's supposed to testify before House Intelligence, and then that gets postponed in the interests of the investigation, according to Adam Schiff. It seems to me at this point there's a real question whether Michael Cohen will testify. We'll find out soon enough before he goes to prison in March. But I think nobody really wants Michael Cohen's testimony and Michael Cohen really right. doesn't, Michael Cohen want, to doesn't want to testify right. for obvious reasons. The Democrats might actually be concerned about him testifying because he could and likely would Step undermine on their narrative, their narrative on some in, in, in yeah. some significant ways. One, there's the whole question of the trip to Prague where he was supposed to have you know, which was in the the famous dossier, right. and he's more likely than not is going to say he never went to Prague. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's already said that. And then, and this is even more significant, there was the BuzzFeed story, which alleged that Donald Trump directed him to lie in his Senate testimony. Right. We already know that is Mueller largely, has Mueller has debunked accurate. that. I think right. Cohen has actually not spoken out on that issue at all. But if he does, that also will hurt the Democrats. And then you pointed out the Republicans also they don't don't want to testify either. Because look, the fact is that Cohen did plead to a couple of felonies that directly implicate the president, the campaign finance violations that he made the payment to Stormy Daniels at the direction of Donald Trump and that he pled guilty to violating campaign laws in making that payment and as well as coordinating with David Pecker of the National Enquirer fame on a scheme to pay off Karen McDougal, the Playboy model. And then secondly, his guilty plea related 
relating to the Trump Tower Moscow deal, in which he acknowledged he was in direct communication with a Kremlin official and assistant to Dmitry Peskov, Vladimir Putin's press spokesman, about securing land and financing for that deal while Donald Trump was running for president and telling the public he had nothing to do with Russia, no investments in Russia. And so clearly Michael Cohen's testimony, if we ever actually see it, is going to be awkward at a minimum for President Trump and could be quite damaging. So I think this is a case where it's far better for everybody not to have Michael Cohen testify and step on the narrative they want to spin on cable news every night. So they can continue going on cable news. Yes, let's just continue the reality show on cable TV. Devin Nunes can go on Hannity every night and talk about how Michael Cohen is a chronic liar and his testimony actually doesn't implicate the president. And Adam Schiff can go on MSNBC and every night say, well, uh, you know, I can't tell you exactly what Michael Cohen has to say, but it's very damaging to Donald Trump. You are Um, so cynical, Isakoff. I am a professional cynic. think it's all about people's personal interests, getting on TV and more FaceTime. And, you exactly. Know. Yes. Because I know a little bit about that, getting <laughs> FaceTime on TV, maybe. A couple of other things we should talk about. The um, Richard Burr. Remember him, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, that Senate Intelligence Committee investigation that's been going on for over two years into whether there's any links between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, a investigation that has been conducted almost entirely behind closed doors. Not a single fact witness has appeared in public. To me, that's one of the biggest outrages in this whole saga. And now Burr is telling the press that they have found no evidence of collusion Illusion. And then uh, NBC, uh, Ken Delanian, our longtime Intel reporter, who we both know, writes that the Democrats agree that there's no direct evidence of collusion that they've uncovered in this more than two year investigation. A lot of pushback on that and a lot of questions about what it actually means, if anything. Well, there's some kind of legal questions, which I think we'll get into in our conversation with Mimi Roca and um, June Kim about what it actually takes to make a conspiracy case and what direct evidence really means. But the other thing that's notable is, is this was the one congressional investigation during the first two years of the Trump administration that was that was supposed to be conducted in a completely, you know, kind of bipartisan way, much more dignified. The chairman and the ranking member or the vice chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Senator Mark Warner, got along really well with Burr. This is the first evidence of actual kind of real division over a kind of a fundamental thing. Now, Warner, all he's really said is that they're not through with their investigation. So he's not completely buying into what Burr has said about what they've found or haven't found. But this is another example, I think, of people who don't want certain narratives to get out there. And so it's hard to know exactly what it means. And of course, it raises the question of what collusion really is and how people are defining it and what's a crime and what isn't a crime. So I think there's still a lot for us to figure right. out what's behind all I, this. Look, I, I, you can almost predict the end game right now. There'll be a report and it'll, there'll be a majority report that will take the set of facts and reach the conclusion that uh, Richard Burr has already forecast. And there'll be a minority report signed by all the Democrats that will take the same set of facts and reach a very different conclusion. 
And, you know, once again, everybody will go on cable TV to spin their own version of the same set of facts. uh, And it's unlikely to resolve any of the questions about this uh, long-running controversy. The only guy who really can resolve them to anybody's satisfaction, of course, is Robert Mueller. We do think he's in his endgame. We do think we may be seeing the uh, wrap-up of his investigation very soon. Nobody knows for sure, but Matt Whitaker, the acting attorney general about to leave so that Bill Barr can take over, has uh, said he's, uh, you know, Mueller is close to the end of the investigation. Mueller and his team have been kind of completely Delphic about what has actually been going on inside their investigation. You get, when obviously, when there's an indictment, you know, it reveals something about where the investigation is headed, but it really, you're only getting sort of pieces of the puzzle here and there, and they rarely talk about what their real goal is, what, what they're, they're really trying to do. And, and what their theory and of what the their, case and what is, if there the is a theory and of so the And so there case. was this fascinating moment where right. Andrew Weissman, one of Mueller's top deputy, did reveal in fairly stark language what the investigation is all about. And he talked about a meeting between Manafort and Konstantin Kalimnik, A guy linked to Russian military intelligence, the same Russian military intelligence that hacked the DNC and hacked the Podesta emails, right? Right. right. They meet in August of 2016 after the Republican convention at the, what was it, the Grand Havana Cigar Room uh, in New York. Manafort, I think, it's Uh, right near Trump Tower. Right near Trump Tower, and there's this meeting in which Rick Gates, a cooperating witness, is present, and there's this air of mystery about what actually took place at that meeting. This is a meeting in which they are supposed to have discussed a Ukrainian peace plan that would have... uh, lifted sanctions on Russia, something that uh, Vladimir Putin definitely wanted. And then there's the allegation that polling data is given by Manafort to Kalimnik, the Russian intelligence guy. Now, that on its face would seem to raise a whole lot of really serious questions. Why is Manafort sharing polling data with this Russian guy? Now, Kalimnik, of course, had worked for him for many years, so there is that. But a whole lot depends on the specifics of this. The filings so far have been heavily redacted, so we don't know exactly what Mueller's people are saying took place. Now, as we speak, Manafort's liars, f- lawyers, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Freudian. Freudian slip, Freudian slip, his legal counsels. Uh, uh, Sometimes they call lawyers paid liars. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah right. Uh, did file a pleading saying that no, 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 everybody's got this wrong. Before we get to our guests, the last thing I'll say is that we're always looking for the great kind of spy novel details in these stories. And I love in the Washington Post account of this meeting, they point out that Gates, Kalimnik, and Manafort, when the meeting was over, all leave through separate doors, uh, (laughs) leave this place through separate doors, I guess uh, showing the sort of sophisticated spy craft uh, that they've all learned to... uh, 
And I should point out on the now skullduggery TV version of our podcast, you know, we're being taped here. There's only one door that leaves <laughs> from this uh, uh, from this studio. So we will both have to leave through that. And on that note, we should uh, get on with the show. All right. We are joined now by our two Southern District veterans, uh, June Kim, former acting U.S. attorney, Mimi Roca, former assistant U.S. attorney. Welcome to Skullduggery. Happy to be here. All Thanks. right. Mimi, let's start out with you. A lot of attention this week about Richard Burr's uh, statement that the Senate Intelligence Committee has found no direct evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. You have pushed back a bit on that <laughs> on Twitter and on MSNBC, saying direct evidence is not what we should be focused on. Explain what you were talking about. Sure. Well, you know, in, in the many cases that I prosecuted and that I saw prosecuted in the Southern District of New York over the 16 years that I was there, we rarely had direct evidence. Um, direct evidence means that you have a recording of people talking, uh, plotting their crime or discussing the steps of what they're going to do you know, in their criminal endeavors. Or it means you have someone on the inside who was part of those conversations and is able to testify to those conversations. Or it means you have a, you know, a phone call or a text message where they're laying it out. Those things just don't often exist. Cooperators, I would put in a separate category, a cooperating witness who can be from the inside. Those you do often get. But the kind of direct evidence that he's talking about, that Burr's talking about there, the smoking gun, that really doesn't often exist. And so prosecutors spend a lot of time, and this is why investigations take a long time, gathering evidence to build a case from indirect or what we call circumstantial evidence. But and, you still need sort of evidence that all the conspirators are participating in a crime and have knowledge of the crime, right? I mean, it's not just a series of contacts. You need something that implicates each and every one of the conspirators that they have knowledge of the criminal conduct at issue. Absolutely. And circumstantial evidence doesn't mean just contacts. That's not a crime. Just right. hanging out with each other because, you know, it looks suspicious is not enough. But if you have other pieces of evidence, other things that have happened that you can draw inferences from, for example, here, I mean, first of all, I also just want to say that I think we do have some direct evidence here that we even know about. For example, we have the latest reporting that everyone's zoning in on is this meeting between Paul Manafort and Konstantin Kalimnik. And, you know, what exactly transpired at that meeting, we don't know, but it sure sounds like they were talking about relief for san from sanctions for Russia, mm -hmm. and they were talking about something having to do with the campaign because Manafort was giving Kalimnik poll data. So that could be direct evidence, and we don't know what else Mueller has. Even if you put the direct evidence aside, there is just so much here that you would have to accept as coincidence if there wasn't some kind of criminal conspiracy. You know, the idea that the Russians were helping elect Trump at this time, we know that now, that they were doing it through means of social media and hacking, that you had people around Trump who were like Roger Stone talking to the Russians about that, whether, you know, he knew the full plan or not, that he was talking to them about the emails. You had Donald Trump out there asking Russia to, you know, in effect, 
hack the emails, that you had the Trump Tower meeting where we know they were talking about sanctions. I mean, there's just so many things that you could list that were happening all at the same time. And I'm not saying that in and itself is enough to charge a case, but that's just the public knowledge that we have. And and it doesn't make sense that those are all just a bunch of coincidences. Well, let's bore in a little bit on what the, the on the legal issues and what what the actual crimes we're talking about. And ask both you, Mimi, and June, if you set aside the hacking piece of it, and I don't think any evidence has emerged yet that the Trump campaign worked hand in glove with the Russians to hack the DNC or the Clinton emails. What's the overt act here? What is the conspiracy? What is the crime that we're talking about? Manafort met with Kalimnik and gave him Trump campaign polling data. What's the crime we're talking about? I actually think this focus on collusion and is there direct evidence of collusion is perhaps not the right way to look at it, especially if you're thinking about it from a criminal perspective. I get it. From the political perspective, it's simple to say no collusion, and it's simple to say collusion, as if it's either collusion or not, and if it's not, it's fine, and if it is, it's terrible. Collusion you know, itself is not a criminal offense. There are Except in of the a, antitrust context. Right, but. <laughs> exactly. And so what we have seen from the Mueller investigation is, at least what's been made public, there was a lot of interactions between people affiliated with the Trump campaign and people affiliated with Russia and the Russian government. And that's clear. There are a lot of communications. There were a lot of lies that were told to the grand jury, to the investigators, to Congress about those interactions. And those are crimes. Those are false statements offenses. Those are obstruction of justice offenses. Those are just as serious offenses. It also paints a story of the Russians attempting to influence our election, whether it was a big, grand conspiracy to collude with Russia or not, it's pretty clear from the evidence that has emerged. It was criminal conduct. It's been charged by Mueller. That they wanted, the Russians wanted to influence our election. So, and then there are crimes that were committed around that. And those, as I've mentioned, Mm -hmm. so far, there's been a lot of them that's sort of process-oriented. And I say that not to suggest that they're any less serious, although there are a lot of people who say, well, all you're doing is criminalizing, lying to investigators and to Congress. Those are well, serious that, offenses. That is and a those crime, are, a lie to those are, And, and yeah. actually, as a former prosecutor and as a lawyer yeah. who believes in the rule of law, I'm actually happy is not the right word. Or gla- I'm glad that people are focused on it and recognizing and hearing, yes, it is a crime, a federal crime, to lie to FBI agents. It is a federal crime to lie. You have a right in this country, a Fifth Amendment right, not to answer questions. And so... If you think the answers may incriminate you, and there's no adverse inference that can be imposed on you as a result, and so that protection is pretty ironclad. But if you're going to talk, you can't lie, and that's a fundamental principle upon which our criminal justice system so look, is based. And that's it's important that those crimes are being prosecuted, and there's a number of them that have. A lot of people have observed that it may be that the the real legal threat to President Trump himself, is actually from your former office, the Southern District, the case against Michael Cohen, in which the prosecutors have gone further than anywhere else in implicating the president in criminal conduct. In Michael Cohen's guilty plea and sentencing, the prosecutors said he acted in coordination and at the direction of individual one, i.e. Donald Trump. What does that tell you about the president's potential criminal liability here. So I'll start by saying 
I have no personal knowledge of any of this by the time you know all of this started after I left. So hey, I've even been reading, the referral from Mueller's office. Well, uh, when did that happen? I, I'm not going to say one way or the other, but but on because <laughs> you on were the, there until January yeah, 2018. January the raid 2018. was, I think, in the spring of yeah. 2018. So I'll just say the substance yeah. of what's going on and the decisions with respect to Cohen are post-date my time there. So I feel free okay. uh, to talk about them because I wouldn't be disclosing anything that you know I, right. I shouldn't be. But I've, so I've been reading it with interest in the same way you all have. I noted that they did decide in sentencing submissions in an open court and in their charging instruments to say at the direction of individual one. Um, those are conscious decisions that How you make. How unusual is a, that? It's not, it's a judgment call. Sometimes you do it, sometimes you don't. I think it appeared to be pretty necessary to tell the story. When you draft charging instruments, whether it's an indictment or a complaint, you need to put forth enough to explain the charges. For a complaint, you need to actually lay out everything that you need to show probable cause because a judge signs it, and that's the document that the judge looks at to say, is there enough here to issue an arrest warrant? So there you need to. An indictment can be more bare bones. It, it needs to lay out the elements, but usually you do a little more than that because you want to explain why you're charging it, and you want to explain the circumstances because at the end of the day, that's the document. If there's a trial, that's going to go to the jury. The public sees it, obviously, and particularly, you know, a case cases that are of great public interest. You have a duty to explain yourself as prosecutors, and you generally explain yourself through your charges. And so, it's not necessary, or is it unusual? It's not that unusual to explain it, but it is a conscious decision. You know, they knew when they wrote but, at but the direction of individual one that that was going to be. Noted. But were they implicating the president in criminal conduct? It certainly appeared to be. Appeared to say at mm -hmm. the direction of individual one. Right. The, that's what Michael Cohn did at the direction. Right. What he did was at the direction of indi individual one. And I think it's fair to say that the Southern District wouldn't have included that in their documents if they didn't believe it was true based on not just Michael Cohen, but some other corroborating evidence, whatever that is. Okay, so I, at, I think at that's the fair. very least, the president is an unindicted co-conspirator in this crime, correct? I think technically it's not an unindicted co-conspirator because the conspiracy wasn't charged, but that's legal mumbo-jumbo. I mean, yes, essentially, I, I, I think that's right. I think he's been implicated in a crime by the Southern District and Michael Cohen. So what's the next step? Sort of an aider and a better is more the mm -hmm. way I would put it. <laughs> Maybe do you do you think yeah. June what's do you the next well, step? Um, uh, the next step is well this is an interesting situation right because there is a Department of Justice memo that says a sitting president cannot be indicted and my guess is the Southern District is going to comply with that even memo. the Southern even, even the, the Sovereign Southern District, District even of New York District, and I want to get into that a little bit even the Sovereign about District their of New York reputation will as being so independent yeah yeah but they will comply with yeah. internal memos and that is the view of the Department of Justice. It's not a new view. I mean, the, the Office mm -hmm. of Legal Counsel memos, there's two of them. They date back to Watergate, to Watergate yeah. uh, and then yeah. Clinton. So right. it was sort of reaffirmed for President Clinton. So there is this memo out there. So they, if you follow it, he can't be indicted So while he's a sitting president. So what do you do? So what do you do? In any event, by suggesting that someone could be a, a unindicted co-conspirator, the reality is you don't always, therefore, charge everyone. So every individual decision, every charges, all the charges with respect to every individual is going to be viewed on its own merits. And sometimes you have 
unindicted co-conspirators that never get charged for any number of reasons. You may one think, look, I believe that so-and-so was part of this, but we just don't have enough evidence, or we just don't feel like we're at we're there in terms of proving it well, beyond a reasonable well, let's doubt. Say they, or let me, yeah, and or you can just decide, even if you have the proof, you know, this isn't a case that we should bring. I'm not saying that's this case, but every I think Mimi would agree, every charge you look at separately. And just because someone else was charged and you had someone willing to plead guilty to a crime doesn't mean everyone associated then subsequently gets charged. Okay, so. well, since we're speaking in, in hypotheticals, the one option that you didn't talk about is whether they believe they do have the evidence to charge the president with a crime. It's a serious crime. It's one that rises to the level of a prosecution, were it not for the Justice Department, the OLC memo. So if they were to arrive at that place, then what did they do? We've talked a lot about Mueller writing a report, whether or not that becomes public or not, we still don't know for sure. What's the Southern District's option here? They won't write their own report. Will they give what they have to Mueller? Like, play that out for us. Well, I think they won't. I don't think it's, assuming it's in the world of campaign finance fraud and other kinds of maybe financial crimes, I don't think they'll give it to Mueller because I think, if anything, his jurisdiction is just so much more narrow. I mean, I think there's a couple of options. And I think, as June is saying, it depends so much, first of all, on what the crimes are that we're talking about, if any. Campaign finance violations in this case, Okay, but but I'm assuming that... Well, but let's say it's also money laundering. I mean, they've also... We know that they're also investigating the Trump inaugural committee, right? right. So, And and we know that this... Right. We know from things that the Southern District has said, the latest being in correspondence with the judge, Judge Pauly, in Michael Cohen's case... And then Judge Polly came out and said it. They have ongoing investigations, the Southern District. Okay, so they're not done. It wasn't just okay, campaign finance fraud. Boom, we've got that. That's it. I mean, it sounds like they're still investigating because that's what good investigators do. Once you go down that road, you're going to keep going. And my guess is there are things there to be found. So I think it does come down to how serious are the crimes that we're talking about, assuming they find more crimes including campaign finance fraud, and how good is the proof, as June was saying. There is a level of, yes, we think this is enough to get out into the public. We believe it. We have some corroboration, but we can't charge it, putting aside for a second that it's the president. The second option, or another option, I guess, would be, they, even though they're, they're not going to go charging with the existence of the memo, they, I do not. I believe that any U.S. attorney anywhere, even in the Southern District, would abide by that memo, but they can try to push back on the memo and get it changed. It's not a law. Now, I think with the attorney generals that we're talking about now and future, that's not going to happen. With Bill but, Barr, yeah. a former head right. of OLC, yeah. there's zero no. chance. But, but. but that's, a, you know, a lot of people out there are talking about, yeah. would they charge? No. Would they try and push back if they really thought this was significant? Yes, I believe they would try. And then the other option is to, let's assume... We know, as we just said, that Trump was involved with Michael Cohen. Were others involved? We know that from the charging documents as well, right? There were other unnamed executives mentioned. And if there's other financial crimes, it's not going to just be the president alone if there's any crimes to point to with him. So could those other people be charged and other facts come out that way? Yes, that's a possibility. It would be unusual, but we're in really unusual circumstances. So if there were facts that they thought needed to get out to the public, as June said, that's how prosecutors talk and they so could do they it can through tell charging their documents. Story, tell the narrative through 
other indictments. I mean, they'd have to do it carefully and within DOJ policy, but will depend on how involved the president was in the criminal activity, if at all, that they would include it in the charging but then, of documents. Course, Congress would be able to see right. the full extent of the president's involvement, and then they could use that for whatever impeachment proceedings they might want to take right. up. Right. And then there's also the Trump organization. If many right. people have already talked about this possibility, I mean, I, I think it's a real possibility that if the Trump organization was central to criminal behavior, I don't think there's any bar on charging the Trump organization. You know, and, and again, and that would be a how, way of getting facts out. The one thing I might add in, in terms of, you know, what would, does the Southern District of New York do with that? I, my personal view is, uh, as we've said, they will feel constrained by the OLC memos. And so what are they doing with evidence of involvement, potential involvement by the president in Michael Cohn's crimes and misconduct? It's not much is my answer because they know they can't charge. So it's the, sort of the decision whether or not to charge and whether it's a case they would bring or not is not something that they need to decide. So they wouldn't even write a prosecution memo no, and no, send it up they to would the not. attorney general? In fact, they would not. They're not in the business of just generating documents for the purpose of putting something down. <coughs> they are professional prosecutors who need to make decisions about whether or not to charge cases or not. When they know if they're going to comply with the memo, which I believe they would, that they're not, they can't charge a sitting president. They're not, it's not something they're just going to generate a bunch of paperwork. So given all this, I, I want to ask Mimi whether she agrees with uh, this sort of premise that Mike talked about before, that, that the Southern District may represent the greatest legal peril to the president. It sounds like probably not. Well, I think it depends how you define yeah. legal peril. I mean, if you're looking for an indictment of the president in that definition, probably not. But if we're talking about people close to him, people who in his family, because that, I mean, he, he has the, the crossover here of family and business being one thing. Right. And plus, of course, he could also be charged after he leaves office. Yes. Assuming the statute of limitations hasn't, hasn't run, you know, and I haven't done the calculation, but I would Which actually raises would... another interesting possibility. Sorry to cut you off. But what about indicting him under seal? Yeah. So I actually think this is a complicated legal question. I think that that won't save them on the statute of limitations. So I don't think that's a way around it. Won't it. interesting. Them. Why not? No, because you can't seal something just for the purpose of extending the statute of limitations, basically. There's case law on that in, in the Second Circuit. But couldn't the argument, couldn't you just do it under seal because a sitting president can't be indicted? I mean, look, this is a very <laughs> unique situation, but, yeah. but we've, we've had cases during, yeah. I think, mine and June's time there where cases were sealed because there was investigation still happening. There were what we would think of as legitimate reasons. We're not ready to, you know, yeah. publicly charge someone. And the court said, no, 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 you can't do that. You get sort of one shot at this. I think you can do it for a short amount of time to protect the integrity of the investigation. But again, this is unique because no one else is in this position that he's in where he has right. sort of immunity like an, now and later he will If won't. you look at the OLC memo, it actually, it's a long, they're both long memos, but it actually has a section that talks about the possibility of charging and then staying the the actual advancing of those charges. Because the, the, the idea say? behind the, 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 the memo is the distraction that charges against the president would have on right. the administration of his duties, right. his or her duties, would create a constitutional crisis. And that's, you know, impeachment was what was intended for these types of situations. No distraction if so, nobody knows about it. Exactly. But it does have a section that says, how about if you stay it uh, pending the, the presidency? 
And it says, no, we still think it's not allowed. Now, it doesn't expressly discuss the possibility of initiating a case and then keeping it under seal so that the, no, one, no one knows about it. But I still think unless they go and revise the memo, it, still, it just contemplates. The conclusion of the memo is you cannot charge a sitting president. Right. Now, you can take issue with its rationale and say, well, the rationale doesn't apply to a sealed indictment. But until that memo, the conclusion is changed, which, again, I don't think is likely, mm-hmm. it still says no indictment of a sitting president, Do period, you have a couple period. Of- a couple of questions I want to ask you. We've heard so much about the vaunted independence of the Southern District. Um, what does that mean in practicality? I mean, do you not consult with DOJ when you're about to make a major indictment of a political figure or business institution? What, what yeah. does the independence mean? Why is it so unique to the Southern District? Look, the, the independence means that the office makes its decisions based on the law and the evidence. And without interference from... So does every from, U.S. attorney's office. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> but some people protect this independence more than others. And because right. the Southern District has a long history of it, if you sense interference, whether it's from main justice or otherwise, you're sort of, your ears perk up and you say, look, right. this may be the normal supervision from right. the main justice, or this may be sort of trying to influence our decision and we don't want any of that. Sure. Now, that doesn't mean... You know, we talk about it. We talk yeah. about Sovereign District of New York. It doesn't mean the office is yeah. some renegade office that is not following DOJ guidance and memos. It does. And yeah. be, actually, the office fully recognizes that the spotlight is always on it. There's a reputation of independence and sovereignty such that if, we miss the, if the office takes a misstep, yeah. people are going to be looking for it. So. They're not. All right. They're, well, they're that following leads me, all the... That leads me to my to my next question because you were there at a very critical moment. You were the deputy to Preet Bharara, and when President Elect Trump begins to cultivate a relationship with Preet Bharara, offering at first to have him stay on as U.S. Attorney, then a phone call during the transition, and then a phone call while he's President of the United States. He has said that's the phone call that made him very uncomfortable. And the first thing he did was consult with you about that phone call. Tell us about the conversation you had with him about that and how it led to his decision not to return that phone call. Yeah, so Preet has spoken right. about this, and so I feel comfortable mm-hmm. speaking about it. And it's, it played out entirely the way Preet well, has said, which is he came to me and said, look, I just got this message from the White House saying that the president called and asked uh, that he call the president back. And that made him nervous. It made us all nervous. What, uh, what was your what thought about, about it? that? So we, we thought that he should tread very carefully because as an office and as the United States attorney, he would not want to be viewed as having been influenced in any of our decisions by, as I said, anything other than the law and the evidence. Mm-hmm. And we actually printed out some of these internal DOJ memos. We're sovereign, but we actually still read memos. (laughs) And there was a memo that said that the communications on substantive matters between the White House and the Department of Justice needs to take place through certain channels only. That included the Attorney General or the Deputy Attorney General. It did not include United States attorneys. And so he didn't know, we didn't know what the purpose of the call was, what the subject matter would be, but we concluded that it would be risky to get on a call and let's say the conversation veered into substantive matters. It's not just, you know, we had investigations going at the time into the mayor's office in in New York. And so we had any number of investigations that 
even if it was a perfectly normal or a call where no something came up, well, we don't know. He never answered. You know, he didn't call him back. Yeah, but the mere fact of the phone call was not normal. And we thought, well, all that potentially decisions that we he was going to make and the office was going to make if people found out that there was a call from the White House that he took and it could have been purely social, they would be could be questions asked later, oh, it's, I'm sure he told you X, Y, Z. Now, there was the whole tarmac meeting that became a big deal because they met. So, um, Lynch, we'd, we'd, yes. And so, we decided, so even if, there, even if the conversation is perfectly innocuous, there could also be the perception of improper Did you influence. talk about that, the Lynch-Clinton uh, meeting when you With, were discussing? Yeah, we talked about, yes. Right, and, and that was very much in your mind. Yeah, I mean, so we concluded the right thing to do is to not call back. And right. explain why. And, and, and then the rest was, is uh, history. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was fired yeah. the next day, and you became acting U.S. attorney for Yeah, and year. I felt a little bad for that advice. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I, pay, I paid for dinner. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, listen, thank you both for sharing your insights here, and uh, we hope to have you back on Skullduggery. Thanks for having us. Thanks. All right, enough legal mumbo jumbo. Let's uh, <laughs> let, let's talk a little politics, uh, which our listeners are probably attuned to. As uh, every week, a new presidential candidate uh, jumps in, and uh, this past week it was Amy Klobuchar, who, interestingly enough, had been interviewed on Skullduggery just a few weeks ago, and uh, you know she is positioning herself as the moderate who can work across party lines, but also is likable and funny. Now, of course, she's getting a little flack over some of her treatment of staff. There's been some pretty hard-hitting stories that that's not so much her, that's her public face, but not her private face. Uh, But she does have a good sense of humor. She's funny. She is funny, genuinely funny. We saw that in our interview. Right. Kind of rare among politicians these days that they're actually... Yeah. Funny, but right, but it's apparently an inherited trait because uh, so is her daughter, a budding comedian. And we talked to Senator Klobuchar about that during our interview, so we thought we'd maybe play that again in light of the, the fact that she's now running for president of the United States. Let's take a listen. Uh, indicated this week that your family is now on board. Yes, big with surprise. You running big for news. Well, well, you know, I did that because a lot of people use that as an excuse, <laughs> and I had wanted to follow up saying I was going to talk to them, but I most significantly noted that my in-laws were on board. Right. They want well, you to run. Yeah, they well, they have run, right? T-shirts they... that say right. from my past campaigns that say I'm Amy's mother-in-law, and, and he would be shocked at the number of people that say that's so cool you, in parades. I'm... Your mother-in-law's on your side. Bad politics like, to divide your in-laws, yeah, let me but tell I you. Say, well, who else will she support? <laughs> but another member of your family who can, we can presume is on board, your daughter Abigail, a <laughs> budding comedian, who, and I found this on Twitter this morning doing some research, oh, wrote no. a Uh-oh. senior <laughs> thesis called It's No Joke, The Use of Humor by Presidential <laughs> Candidates <laughs> you know, from true. Kennedy to Trump through one-liners, talk shows, and okay. tweets. You know, is this your guidebook for running no, for president? No, you know what's really funny about this of course again i have not made a decision yet uh but what's really funny about this was over christmas she handed me that paper and said to me mom 
This was my senior essay. It actually won the best political uh, science prize in Kudos co- to her college, and she uh, at her college, and she handed it to me and said, "It's on the internet." I bet someone's going to ask you about it sometime. <laughs> All right. Of course, the great investigative First on Skullduggery. I cannot believe right. this. She said, you should read it. So I had read it a little like a mom would. Oh, cool. But this time I really read it, and it was pretty interesting. And uh-huh. she went through in modern the modern era and looked at, analyzed jokes that people actually laughed at. I think that was right. her standard. Right. And kind of looked at how people, including Donald Trump, uh, had used humor in the campaign. So do you think... And it was just, it was her political science essay. She was 17 years so old. So do you think you can actually inject humor and keep people laughing in this no, no, presidential no. You can't campaign? Have that. that cannot be the theme of running for president <laughs> is to be funny. But I think the point is, is that um, the president has a way of going after people in hugely mean ways. And sometimes you have to stand your ground and make that very clear in a very serious way. And sometimes you have to throw back a little humor at this because it does become absurd when you have someone waking up at 5 a.m. and sending out a bunch of mean tweets before anyone wakes up. And so you have to find a way to stand your ground but not have him define the agenda. And so to take everything seriously, he says, and to spend your whole time talking about it, you are down the 2016 rabbit hole. Um, and that's strategic issues. I'm not mm-hmm. actually talking about Secretary Clinton herself. I'm talking about some strategic decisions right. that were made. And so you're down that rabbit hole every single day instead of setting your own positive, optimistic academic agenda, which I think is what Americans want in a candidate and in a president. Thanks to Mimi Roca and June Kim for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku. Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.